I'm Jamie O'Kane, CPA, small business advanced tax planning and compliance extraordinaire. And this is the Abundant Beans Podcast, the podcast that takes my love for learning what makes people tick while digging into the good, bad, and ugly of small business ownership. We strive to give you the insight that only those in the trenches of being and working with entrepreneurs can provide. Today, um, we're going to welcome to the podcast, Chris Putnam Walker Lee. Chris is a trusted advisor to the world's leading philanthropist. I'm going to have a hard time with that word like all day. (laughs) (laughs) And the president of Putnam Consulting. As a philanthropy advisor, speaker, and award-winning author, she's helped hundreds hundreds of philanthropists strategically allocate over half a billion dollars in grants and gifts. I like the strategically allocate. She's the author of Delusional Altruism, and I actually have it right here. I found it. <laughs> I was like, I know it's on the shelf somewhere. Um, and Confident Giving, Sage Advice for Founders. Chris is also a Forbes.com contributor on philanthropy, a global philanthropy content partner to Alliance Magazine, and the U.S. philanthropy expert to the leading Dutch philanthropy media outlet. Not even going to try that one. <laughs> In 2017, Chris was inducted into the Million Dollar Consulting Hall of Fame, one of only 75 consultants worldwide who are recognized for outstanding accomplishments and are regarded by their peers as global leaders in consulting. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's good to see you again. Um, So what was your first job? My very first job in uh, high school, I was 15 years old and I worked at the College of Worcester in Ohio in their food service department. So I think I was, uh, I don't know, cleaning dishes and bringing out trays of food for college students. Um, My first job though, like professionally, I graduated from college at Indiana University and went, moved to San Francisco and went to work for a nonprofit that was trying to um, support human rights in Central America. And so uh, that was my first professional job. I did a lot of organizing. And it actually was, when I think back on it, the beginning of my understanding of what I now call delusional altruism, which is the topic of my current book. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, uh, so I'm dating myself. This was, uh, say, I graduated college in 1990. So this is the early 90s. Um, the fancy new technology of the day was the fax machine. And <laughs> I always say, I always say, I only have a fax machine because the IRS makes me fax things to them. Right. Exactly. And it's not even a fax machine. It's a digital fax machine. <laughs> but, you know, we use faxes then the way we use social media now, which mm-hmm. was to get the word out quickly. You know, you send these fax alerts to people to get them to like call their congressperson. And so, but we didn't think we could afford our own fax machine um, because it cost too much money. And you know, we were trying to send all of the money we raised to Central America. So instead we had to walk a block, or excuse me, 10 blocks, a mile round trip uh, to send faxes. We had to borrow somebody else's fax machine, uh, another organization. And so we would do this, you know, multiple times a week, sometimes every day. And uh, then I find myself a couple of years later, I'm still working at this organization and we go to Central America to deliver aid. And we walk into the office of one of these organizations we're supporting. And what do I see? This ginormous fax machine, right? This thing like faxed, collated, copied, stapled, you know, I practically made the coffee. And I was stunned because they were aid recipients and we were aid, you know, bringers of the aid. Mm-hmm. And I asked the executive director, how could you possibly afford a fax machine? And he said, 
well, we have to send faxes every day. Like we need this, of course we need a fax machine. And to me, it was my first understanding of, you know, what I call delusional altruism. And, and part of that is the scarcity mindset mm -hmm. where we thought we were helping, you know, helping folks by being, having a scarcity approach to our work and not investing Everybody. in ourselves. Mm -hmm. But really we were just wasting a lot of time, right? Because imagine if instead of spending an hour walking round trip to send a fax every day, we had spent that hour, you know, uh, calling donors and asking for money, right? We could have raised a lot more money than that fax machine ever would have cost. And so um, it was my first job out of college, but it was certainly a very influential uh, experience for me and my work. I love that. Um, there's that saying, I've been saying it a lot lately, lately stepping over dollars to pick up pennies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I'm in a, I'm in an industry where people are very frugal and I'm always very, very, very confused by it, you know, in a lot of situations. Um, we really have to invest in ourselves. I yeah. think as business owners, as philanthropists, mm -hmm. as nonprofit leaders in order, it's like putting your oxygen mask on first before you can help others. Right. Yeah. And I and think, I think it's the confusion that time has no value. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I run to a lot is like, why wouldn't you pay the 40 bucks a month for the scheduling situation that makes you not have to do this by hand to save like 10 hours? Like, what is the, <laughs> you could take a nap or you could earn that like five times over in that 10 hours or thousand times over even. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just talking with a client literally before, before getting on this with you. And we were talking about how much time they waste. It's a, a grant making foundation, mm -hmm. how much time they waste preparing for board meetings every quarter. And it's an inordinate amount of time. I mean, I have clients where they'll say, we're going to spend like a month or several months to prepare for the board meeting, which happens every three months, right? Like that just makes no sense. And there's all this preparation, preparation, and then the big event the board meeting. And then there's the recovery. Like, you know, people are exhausted afterwards. They need to take time off. They might need to, like their, you know, emails haven't been answered and, you know, work is piling up and then they do it all over again. And no one is paying attention to how much time that takes. It's stunning to me. So they really work for like a month and a half on the... <laughs> <laughs> or if you add it up, if you spend a month preparing for every board meeting and that happens four times a year, that's then you need a couple weeks to a cover from all right. of that. That's the so next you, month. Five months a year. <laughs> and if you just, I mean, you can do the math. I mean, you can look at someone's salary, add 25% benefits, mm -hmm. calculate their hourly rate, if you will, and just estimate like how much actual time and money you're spending for all this. I mean, these, you know, board books and all this craziness and, you know, no one reads any of this stuff. Right. For no ROI, for it to go on a shelf somewhere or no be trashed. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We used to spend a lot of time like putting together tax returns and like, you know, whatever. And, you know, packets for the financials and whatever. Nobody ever read them. Mm -hmm. I was like, we're done. I'm done doing that because you don't care. And it's just a waste of our time. Exactly. If you cared, you let me know that you wanted it, but not a single person has noticed we haven't done it for the last two years. <laughs> That should tell you something, right? right? And I was like, nobody ever asked for their management packet. Like it never happened. So it was like, and then um, it was, that was, and I did that because the firm we used to, I used to work for did that. And I thought it was great. Like here's your financials, here's some notes, here's some, you know, things we see. And then I work for a 
company that is still their tax client and then they would hand me a packet because I would help with some of the financial stuff and I was like I don't want your packet <laughs> trash. and that was kind of my moment of okay uh-huh. my time putting together packets people don't people aren't listening people aren't reading our packets um so give us the quick rundown on your career journey you already talked about you know that first nonprofit you worked for and then where'd you go from there uh, well, I went to, what did I do? I went to work for the VA, the Veterans mm-hmm. Administration. I was basically like a glorified administrative assistant um, oh, wow. uh, helping a public health research center. And then I went to get a master's in social work, thinking that I was going to run social service agencies. I would be the executive director of some social service agency. That was my goal. And then when I was in grad school, I took some classes in evaluation and how do you evaluate the impact of nonprofit programs and social services. And I thought that was really interesting because of course, at the end of the day, you're trying to help people or you know, communities or the environment or you know, whatever you're trying to help. And if you don't evaluate the impact, how do you know if you're being successful or what to do more of, what to stop doing, what to change? So I actually went to work at Stanford University after grad school um, in the School of Medicine at another public health research center. And that was funded, um, this project was funded by the California Wellness Foundation. And it was evaluating youth and gang violence prevention programs all over the state of California. And that was, um, you know, back when there was a shift um, in thinking about youth violence from a criminal justice problem to more of a public health problem. And how do you think about prevention rather than like, you know, tossing these kids in juvenile detention. And um, how do you prevent violence and gang violence? And so that was really interesting and uh, a great experience. And I, and because it was funded by this large foundation, I recognized the value of philanthropy. You know, if you have nothing else as a philanthropist, you have money, you know, either your own or you're working at a company or a foundation and it's somebody else's money. But you know, and you can, money can be spent well or, or not so well, but if you do it right and you bring in, you know, really smart people, diverse perspectives and experiences, you listen to the people who are impacted by these issues um, and engage them in coming up with the solutions. And, you know, you really think about what's the right intervention, what's the best way to tackle this problem and put the money behind it. You know, you can really create a lot of change. And um, so then I went to work at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation um, and this is the family foundation of Dave Packard of HP. I was going to say the HP, the mm-hmm. HP family. Yep. And so at the time was the largest or one of the largest in the country and, um, you know, great experience. I did a lot of grant making to support, um, access for low-income Americans, access to, um, both Medicaid and, um, the ch- chip, uh, gosh, I'm going to forget the name chip. of the acronym. Uh, health, uh, anyway, it's like a, a low cost health insurance. Children's mm-hmm. health. Mm-hmm. Yes, for children's health, mm-hmm. health insurance. And, um, you know, because not enough people have access to health insurance in this country. Mm-hmm. And a lot of children uh, don't have access to care. So, you know, again, great experience. And, it, and I kept starting to get asked to do consulting gigs on the side and started doing them with some colleagues and then on my own and realized I liked consulting. I did a lot of consulting projects with Charles Schwab's Family Foundation for a number of years, and then it just expanded from there. So I left my job and began a full-time uh, consulting. That's awesome business. Mm-hmm. How long have you had Putnam? 
20 years. Wow. So let's, so let's get down and like kind of into the down and dirty on philanthropy. Um, You're pronouncing it better. That's good. (laughs) We'll get there eventually. I don't say this word very often. Um, You said in, you said in the book, it it kind of sounds hoity-toity. And I, and I was like, yeah, I just have this vision of like the robber barons almost, you know, and like the twenties and, you know, the hats and the, you know, they're going to, I don't know, symphony or something, but just like kind of in my mind, that's what I like I picture, but what is philanthropy? Yeah, it sounds highfalutin and hoity-toity. I like that word. Um, But, you know, to me, it's really, I I really think most all of us are philanthropists because Mm -hmm. it's really about actively promoting human welfare. Mm -hmm. And so we can do that in all kinds of ways. We can do it by giving, you know, certainly financial resources, but also through, you know, sharing our talent, our expertise with others by donating our time uh, through volunteering or serving on a nonprofit board of directors, mm-hmm. um, you know, and in different countries uh, and parts of the world, being philanthropic means different things. So like in many African countries, you know, you might be giving to family, but family is uh, more widely defined as not just your own actual family, but others in your community or like kids of friends. And mm-hmm. so, you know, taking, I was talking to a woman who was like taking in her friend, her friend's children for a period of time and that's considered part of philanthropy. So, you know, I just think it's giving of yourself Mm -hmm. and the resources that you have. Um, You know, it can be as simple as making an introduction to um, a nonprofit leader, to someone in in the community that you think could help them because you know both people and you're making that simple introduction. But for that nonprofit leader, that's a really big deal. It really could be the connection they need to accomplish whatever it is they're trying to do. That's awesome. Um, so one of the things you help people do, and you can just tell me if I'm wrong here, um, um, is to create positive impact to met, to match their intentions. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about like, what are in the delusional altruism part, like that's where this fits in. Um, what are the biggest mistakes people make to, to, to deaden their impact or not create the impact that they, that, that they're hoping for? Mm-hmm. What are those big well, mistakes? Yeah, so there's lots of mistakes. And I think the first um, is not having clarity in what you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to know, if you don't know where you're headed, it's hard to know how to get there or if you've arrived, right? right. So uh, I think too often funders, um, and again, you know, donors, leaders of foundations, you know, Fortune 500 or small business, mm-hmm. at whatever scale, you need to start with clarity as to what you're trying to accomplish. So having clarity on, the, um, on your strategy, you know, what do you want to accomplish in the next year with your giving? What kind of impact do you want to have in your community? Um, what kind of change do you want to see? What kind of philanthropist do you want to be? You know, that's a fair question. And then looking at where are you today on these issues? And then, you know, what's the, what are the two or three or four things you should focus on to get you from where you are today to where you want to be in a year? Like that's kind of your plan. Mm-hmm. And so I think your the impact question um, you can create after that, because you know if if what you want to do is make sure that every kid in your community has access to high quality preschool, um, and today you know half of children don't have access. So what are your things you're going to focus on to get from where you are today to where you want to be? Now in a year you're not going to have all children in your community having access to high quality pre-K. Like that's just not going to happen. That's a large goal. Like you know half to 100 percent in a, you know a year. 
I mean, unless you live in a really small town. Um, but, you know, what are the realistic things that, you, that can be accomplished in that year? Well, in that year, you could put together a, collabor a collaboration of the county government, city government, local providers, other funders, you know, mm -hmm. transportation to come together and create a plan. You could do a survey to understand, like, where exactly are there gaps and, and what, what's the, why are kids not getting access? Is it because their parents don't know how to find high quality preschool? Is it because there aren't enough of them? So, you know, even if everyone wanted to, you know, enroll their kid, it would be physically impossible. Or is it because they're not located in places where people can get to easily and then get to work? And so, um, you know, so, so kind of just creating a plan. And so your impact is tracking the reality of what you're actually trying to accomplish and how you're trying to accomplish it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think another thing though, too, is that people don't recognize that, um, you know, you have to calibrate your expectations of, of the kind of impact you want to have with the donation you're making. So, you know, you might make a thousand dollar donation and expect that the nonprofit's going to have like outcome measurements and an evaluation that they've done. Well, evaluation costs money. And if the nonprofit is kind of hobbling along mm -hmm. with lots of different donations and chances are they don't have the money and the resources to really invest in an evaluation to assess their impact. Now you're, you know, so it's like you have to kind of calibrate your expectations mm -hmm. accordingly, um, I think. And then, you know, the other thing I think it's important to think about is, you know, impact you assess based on data collected so um, to do that, you have to have a, a program, you know, in place, for example, that's already, you know, let's just say like, uh, you know, treating people, people are coming in, getting some kind of help, mm -hmm. and you're assessing if they've changed or made improvements or whatnot. Well, that's great, but not, that's not a really good model to follow if what you're trying to do is something brand new. You know, if you're kind of coming up with a new innovative approach, mm -hmm then, you know, you have to give that some time to be able to be determined if it's effective or not. Yeah. And I think, you know, philanthropy is a great way to try new things, test new ideas, new interventions. It's, it can really be that kind of R&D money, that research and development money for, you know, social services, healthcare, um, crisis response, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, approaching it with a, a mindset of, you know, openness and abundance um, uh, and being able to intervene in ways that, that are both meaningful and, you know, ideally impactful is a good way to go. What do you say, I, I just said, I, I just think of this because I was, um, I was reading that annual report for Planned Parenthood this last weekend um, because somebody made some comment. I'm like, it's 4% abortion. Can we just not even, but anyway, anyway. <laughs> understanding that whatever your dollars are going to go to, you know, especially if it's like a large, you know, a large, like a large nonprofit, like Planned Parenthood, they have those evaluation systems and you have the ability to look at those and understand where your dollars are going. Right. Um, which is one of those mistakes people make though, is looking at kind of like their overhead or like how many directors are getting paid and saying, oh no, that one's not for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So I think a common mistake that many donors make is um, focusing on, as you said, this myth around overhead, 
which is basically, you know, this notion, and we've all heard it, like 99 cents of every dollar goes to support, you know, whoever the organization is trying to help. And, oh, don't worry, we only spend one cent on every dollar received, like for overhead or administration or fundraising or whatever. But if you think about it, like imagining running your business where only like 1% of your revenue, you were allowed to invest in yourself and the, you know, the rest of it had to like, I don't know, go someplace else. I mean, it makes no sense, right? Because you need to invest in, you know, the lights, the rent, paying your people a good salary so that they stay. Quality people. Um, you know, staff retention, um, research and development, investing in technology, mm. you know, bookkeepers, you know, whatever kind of financial management you might have or need. The audits and those those evaluation reports. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right? Those, those are expensive. Um, right. So, you know, I'm not saying go overboard, but certainly you have to invest that we talked about earlier, invest in yourself in order to have the greatest impact. Right. And, you know, nonprofits need to do that because again, think about it. Um, uh, if, you know, you have an organization that you support and believe in and, um, you know, you really believe in what they're doing and the impact that they're having and, you know, it's a cause you care about. Well, don't you want that nonprofit to be as effective as it can be? Don't you want them to have top talent, you know, a good infrastructure, the ability, a great like financial management system, the ability to fundraise from different kinds of people so that they always have resources coming in, a great board of directors, the ability to evaluate themselves and make course corrections and improvements, some communication or outreach apparatus, right? Of course you want all that, but all that costs money. And I think donors need to recognize the value in simply in investing in an organization and really freeing up the resources so that um, they can, um, you know, they can make, especially like in this pandemic, they can make adjustments, navigate around problems and situations, take advantage of opportunities that come their way and be very flexible. But I think too often donors make the mistake of you know, not allowing their money to go for a quote unquote overhead, not recognizing they're really just hamstringing the nonprofit, right? That way, that's um, what makes the nonprofit effective. Right, right. And, you know, also just not allowing money to be, you know, kind of restricting the money. Like you can, mm -hmm. I mean, I've had funders tell me that they'll fund a program, like a tutoring program, but the money can't pay for personnel. So you'll pay for a tutoring program, but you're not going to pay for the tutors. What are you paying for? Like, it makes no sense, right? Or they'll pay for like a advocacy effort, but won't pay for the people to go advocate at like, you know, state, you know, city council. So, you know, I mean, this is all a people business, right? So it doesn't make it, so when you tightly restrict the money, it can only be used for this and only be used for that, but it can't be used for this and only for a year. And by the way, you have to do all these reports and, you know, fill out these lengthy application processes. Well guess what? I mean, it doesn't make, it's, you know, it's common sense. A lot of the staff are spending a lot of time doing all this stuff, all these machinations just to get money that they're kind of hobbling together to make something work. And we would never expect a business to run that way effectively, right? So why would we expect a nonprofit? Yeah. Um, it's always interesting to me, you know, to kind of along those lines, I'm like, if this was a side hustle for whoever's doing this thing, they're not going to last very long if they're not getting paid. Right. Like if you really truly believe in this mission, why don't you put as many dollars as possible to the person who's creating said impact? Exactly. Um, and I've worked as a volunteer. <laughs> Volunteers are not good. <laughs> you know, like there's <laughs> only so much they can actually do because they're not paid. 
Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like exactly our church in the childcare forever. And I was like, I had a lot of great ideas and things to tell you guys, but I'm not getting paid. So, <laughs> you know, like you won't listen to me anyway. Um, and we can't make improvements if everybody's a volunteer all the time. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, I think we occasionally hear stories of like some nonprofit leader making a lot of money, but, you know, again, just giving us, you know, kind of making up a scenario here. If there's a nonprofit leader who's making $500,000, that could be seen as like horrifying, right? Oh, that's so much money. They don't deserve that. Well, what if that nonprofit leader was able to bring in $20 million in donations, but the previous person who was making $200,000 a year could only bring in $5 million in donations? Like, do the math, you know, like, I think we want the more money coming into the organization as long as it's all being done above board and everything. But you know what I mean? So just you have to think logically. Um, and too often I think funders, you know, they're super smart people. They generated money through, you know, often growing a business, selling a business, you know, sometimes it's inherited wealth. But nonetheless, you know, you're smart, but it's sometimes like common sense gets tossed out the window. When we're looking at non-giving. Yeah, or when we're looking at nonprofits, like they're supposed to be different than business. Mm-hmm. And they are in the sense that there's a different bottom line, you know, it, mm-hmm. you know, let, let, let's just say, let's take impact, right? Well, what if you're supporting substance abuse treatment uh, programs? Well, that's great. And we know that there's a lot of, you know, recidivism, you know, addicts get sober and then they, you know, relapse. And so you have to recognize that changing human behavior and addiction or health problems can take a long time. It isn't the same thing as selling a widget and making a profit, you know, it's different, but, yeah. but at the same time, it's an organization and you're, you're running an, an organization. Yeah. Um, nonprofits always very interesting to me just because people are always like, I'm going to create a nonprofit. And I'm like, why? And they're like, just cause it's so then it's nonprofit. And I'm like, we're going to run it any different than you would run a business. Well, no. <laughs> okay, well, maybe let's not do a nonprofit then. <laughs> Why don't you take that money and give it away later? Or, you know, like you can still give to charity out of your business. Yeah. It's another mistake a lot of people make is, you know, again, and I wrote the book delusional altruism because, mm-hmm. you know, what, what that means to me is you're genuinely wanting to make a difference, be altruistic, change the world, help people out, but you're delusional in kind of your misguided beliefs and practices that are actually holding you back. And, making you less effective. So it doesn't mean that you're crazy. It just means you're um, kind of clinging on to these beliefs. And one of them um, is, and I'm just, I forgot what you just said before. About people just creating nonprofits. Oh yeah, right. So they wanna, you know, pick your issue like end homelessness. Uh, and so the, not, the response is, well, we'll start a nonprofit, right? Well, chances are there's already like way too many nonprofits in your community competing for funding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is your idea really that not different, honestly, mm-hmm. than others. Maybe it is, but you know, do you recognize what you're setting yourself up for? You're setting yourself up for starting an organization, a 501c3 organization, and managing it and fundraising for it. And often, you know, you have the best of intentions, but you have zero fundraising expertise, um, and so you end up kind of saddled with this extra nonprofit that you're trying to raise money for. I mean, your idea could be the most brilliant idea in the world, but why not first look around and say, well, who else is doing really good work in the homeless area or whatever the issue is Mm -hmm. you're focusing on? 
and, and building relationships with them, maybe partnering with them, maybe going to work for them or saying, here's this great idea. I'm happy to help you create a new program or a new initiative around this. You know, I'll support you, I'll join your board or whatever, however I can be helpful. Um, or as you said earlier, not even, even doing that, but just saying, I have this amount of money. Mm-hmm. Let me identify some great organizations doing really good work and see how I can, I can help them do the work they're doing. Yeah. I just find it interesting. You know, people are like, I'm going to start a nonprofit. And it's like, do you know that it takes like legal compliance? Like that costs stuff to, you know, even start. And then you're like, oh, well, I'm going to do this thing for free. It's like, well, you can't because you're going to have costs, <laughs> right? And it's going to be time and money and effort. Um, and then, right, like, like you're saying, like, do you know how to fundraise? Mm-hmm. Are you ready to file, you know, to do the financial part on that stuff? You know, people say, well, we're a nonprofit because X, Y, Z. And I'm just like, that sounds like um, a lot of rigmarole to just be a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, this happens a lot with professional athletes, actually, um, where, you know, folks, you know, are very successful as athletes. They've made a lot of money. They're well known and they want to give back to their communities in ways that were meaningful for them as they were growing up, you know, maybe it was a coach that really helped them or a community center or whatever it was, right? Which is awesome. And then they'll, you know, response is to start the nonprofit, to start the tutoring program, to start the camp. And I was talking with one, um, you know, former NFL player who was in the situation and, you know, he and his wife were dedicating a lot of time and resources of their own to getting this thing off the ground. And we're having small success, I mean, successful, but in small scale, mm-hmm. I couldn't really understand why it wasn't growing, but they didn't have fundraising experience because like who has fun, you know, no one has fundraising experience, right? Unless you are magically born with it or you get trained or whatever. Uh, but he wasn't going to invest in, in any, in any help, which was interesting. He, there's two things going on. One is that I think a lot of celebrities think that, well, I'm well known, so people will just donate to the organization, right? Well, no, the reality reality is the opposite. They think, well, you have all the money, <laughs> you donate to your organization. Why should I? You fund it, not me. Exactly. And then secondly, um, they don't, and this is applies to many funders, they don't invest in their own growth and their own help. And so what he needed to do is hire like a fund development consultant or a grant writer or something that wouldn't have been a huge investment, someone to help him think through, well, what's our fund development plan? Who are the right kind of, should we go after like foundations or corporate sponsorships or what's the right approach? And then what kind of materials do we need? Like, how do we execute on this? Cause then that would have gotten, he would have raised money but he wasn't willing to make the investment. Uh, But you know, too often I think funders of any kind. So if you're a small business or you're a fortune 500 company you know, recognizing that you might need outside expertise, a facilitator to help you make decisions faster, someone to help you clarify your giving strategy and what your giving priorities are. You know, there's all kinds of things. I mean, I do a lot of advising and coaching of foundation leaders. And I think the ones that are the most effective are the ones that are willing to invest in themselves and their own growth and, Mm -hmm. you know, have a sounding board who can be there with them and help them navigate some of these challenges and opportunities um, because it's hard to do it alone. And the ones that are kind of flailing are the ones that aren't getting help. I mean, we talk about that all the time in business, right? (laughs) I'm all about the outside. I'm all about hiring things you don't know how to do. 
Um, I mean, I end up over my head on stuff and I'm like, wait a minute, what are you doing? You should hire this thing out. Right. Because there's, there's always gaps in our knowledge and we can't know everything. And especially if we're trying to create the biggest impact in the fastest way possible, especially when we're dealing with nonprofits, how you can't do that yourself mm-hmm. unless you have some expertise in it. Exactly. exactly. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Chris. <laughs> and I'm financially savvy, like Hammy's and financials. I'll figure it out for you. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I just think that we just have so many holes in our knowledge always, especially if we're trying to like, you know, do something completely different than our expertise. Exactly. And you don't know what you don't know also. Yeah. And so somebody that can help you identify, well, here's, have you thought about these five things or here's the things you need to be paying attention to? Mm-hmm. Here's what's going to happen when you start a foundation. People are going to look at you differently. You know, the, things are going to change. How are you going to respond? What's it going to be like when you have to say no to somebody because they don't fit into your funding guidelines? Like, let's talk about that mm-hmm. now um, before it's happening to you so you're prepared. And like in the, in the example of like professional athletes, generally they're not, they've never been business owners either. They've been in place. Right. Usually. Right. Right. So, um, I mean, like at many of us, we might've had one job. That doesn't mean we've run an organization or we've been a philanthropist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but, you know, I mean, I think certainly the book delusional altruism can be very help, a very helpful guide. I mean, I wrote it really to be to, ver- to offer, it's not a blame and shame kind of book. It's really designed to help people recognize their blind spots and how they happen. And, you know, some of it's, you know, having that scarcity mindset I talked about, sometimes it's- We talk about that all the time around here. <laughs> being held back, right, by a fear and feeling overwhelmed and, you know, not having a plan, not knowing your next step. And then the second half of the book is all about what they can do differently to be more transformational, meaning, you know, how do you create lasting impact, not just kind of band-aid solutions, but also to transform how you give as a funder um, and to give in more meaningful ways. So you just segued into my next question for you. Good job. Um, What are the things we should be doing to make the greatest impact with our giving or time or, you know, airwaves or whatever it is? Yeah. Well, to me, it comes, it starts with asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and there's a whole chapter on this in the book, but the cu- first couple I'd suggest asking is, um, first is why. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, like identify your purpose. Why, why do you wanna give, um, uh, what is your why as a philanthropist? You know, mm-hmm. what, what's the purpose behind that? But also to ask why to question assumptions because, um, you know, there's no shortage of social problems in the world and there's no shortage of solutions, possible solutions and bright, shiny objects. And so, you know, and you'll get asked, you know, you can get asked a lot of for requests for funding and whatnot as a funder. And so just asking why to question assumptions and, and make sure that what you're doing is the right thing for you to be doing. So, um, so for example, you know, somebody might say, well, you know, you need to have a crowdfunding, you know, approach to your giving to, to raise more money. Well, there's nothing, nothing wrong with crowdfunding, but it isn't, it's a tool, right? It's not like necessarily the right tool for every solution. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't, so to ask why, you know, why crowdfunding? I actually worked with a, a large foundation actually, who uh, have been around for a long time, does really good work and, and 
the person I was talking to said, well, our CEO says we need to start doing crowdfunding in every initiative. So whatever we are working on together has to involve crowdfunding. And so, and so, you know, it was like, we had to kind of fit crowdfunding into every, every project. It made no sense, right? We're just going to squeeze it in there. <laughs> right. Because it was a shiny object. I don't know, someone heard about it at a conference. And so if you don't ask why, it's easy to get, you know, just kind of taken down a path mm -hmm. and it isn't necessarily a bad path. It just might not be your path. The second question to ask is what? And um, by that, I mean, um, especially asking what before how. Mm -hmm. And this is really about, I think, getting clarity on your strategy before you're focusing on your tactics. Mm -hmm. So asking what is, you know, questions like, what are we trying to accomplish? This isn't that complicated. You know, what kind of change do we want to see? What kind of philanthropic family do we want to become? What kind of philanthropic company do we want to become? And, you know, then looking at, well, where are you today? And only at, then figuring out how, like how do we get from where we are today to where we want to be? What's the 20% of effort that's going to drive that 80% of results given what we're trying to accomplish? But too often, I think um, funders will Kind of start with the tactics. We all do this. We start with the tactics, right? We go for like, we want the checklist of things we can check off, right? You can't possibly know how to do something until you know what you're trying to do, right? You can't choose among your options until you have clarity on your objective. And so I think too often people mix, get those mixed up. Um, you know, you see this often around like communication, like I need a communication plan. Should I be on Twitter or Instagram? You know, and it's like, no, like you can't possibly know if you should be on either, right? Until you know, what are you talking to, accomplish to with your communication? Who are you trying to reach? Mm -hmm. What do you want them to do? And only then is like, what's the best way to reach them? Your communication strategy might be picking up the phone and talking to them, not tweeting call, about don't it. Don't call me. <laughs> what, right? So. Um, so I think those are some important things, um, you know, that funders really need, need to be doing to make sure, because if you ask the right questions, you can go down the right path. If you ask the wrong questions first, you go down the wrong path. And I think that's where people get tripped up. That's a whole prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like where, like what impact do you want to make, you know, or, and find, you know, and figure out where your dollars are going to go, you know, and what's important to you. Mm -hmm on you know what changes what need to happen where it wants to go and then how do we get there and mm -hmm. i i do advanced tax planning so it's like what what are your goals yeah yes and how do we structure things to help you get to that place mm -hmm. right because there's all kinds of things you could do to help them but what right. are the most important things there's a lot of things we could do to hamstring them yes as well you know there's different ways we can structure things that might not get them to their goals it might actually get them down a whole different path so if you don't know where you want to go, we can't help you get there, right? I can, I mean, I can, I can, you know, I can bop you along and pat you on the head, but are we really actually making positive strides towards set goals? Mm -hmm. um, and it's very similar to, you know, what you're doing. How do we, why, how, what, what, why, how, um, and understanding with your dollars, you know, what, what is that impact or what is, what are you, where are you hoping those dollars are going? Um, and being specific about where you're giving them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know um, we, we used to give a lot to our church and I was just like, but then where does it go from there? 
mm-hmm. you know, and they, they do a large impact in the community. And that's why it was important to me to give those dollars. Cause I knew where I was going. They had the data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is helpful. Yeah. They would, they would spend the dollars for the audit and the data every year. Um, and they didn't have to do that. It's just something they chose to do, which being a financial person, it was just like, you are being accountable to your givers, which mm-hmm. is very important to us and very important to me. And then I get to see where those dollars are going, mm-hmm. you know, or at least some data on where those are going. And I can say, do I want my dollars to continue to go to this place? Or mm-hmm. do I wish we had a bigger impact here, here, and here? Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to allocate some of those dollars somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, and I also think that like I have shiny object syndrome. Like there's a lot of things I care about and there's a lot of places I wish like I could give lots of dollars to. Um, but you kind of just help me like kind of figure out what are those things that I feel, you know, what are, you know, our top three or four, maybe even, and you probably do the same thing, like pick five or like whatever. Yes. Pick a few that you really want that impact, you know, that, that mean the most to you. Yeah, because I think when you can, you can narrow down um, the issues that are important to you mm-hmm. to focus on as a funder that or a donor, then another benefit to that is you is learning and building relationships. So you can really, you know, learn more about that issue, that nonprofit, you know, because you're funding it over time, you might fund different organizations, you might invest some time in, you know, reading up and learning about that issue. And also you can build relationships with the leaders of those nonprofit organizations, you know, as you donate, maybe you'll attend a gala, mm-hmm when we can do that again, you know, and meet them in person or, you know, um, volunteer or whatever it is. And then, you know, the value of that is when things change, when there's another crisis, as there will be another one, uh, you can reach out to that nonprofit and say, hey, you know, one of your donors, this is what I can do. Like, I'm happy to help you. Like, what, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. You have a relationship with them. It isn't just like some random person's, you know, face and name on a website. Mm-hmm. You actually know who these people are because you've been giving and you've been supporting them in meaningful ways. And, and that allows you, I think, as a donor to, to be able to respond and pivot and, help, and be truly helpful mm-hmm. during a time of crisis, um, as well as times of opportunity to, uh, as things are changing in, in positive ways. You know, how can you be helpful to them even beyond giving, giving financially? I love that. And you'll have even more impact, right? Yeah, a lot of nonprofits, you know, when COVID hit, uh, if they weren't like a true, like kind of first responder, if they weren't the food bank, if they weren't providing healthcare services, a lot of nonprofits were fearful of calling their donors and asking for help because this was a, a new, unique, unique crisis where everyone was impacted by it. And mm-hmm. so nonprofit leaders were very fearful of bothering their donors during a crisis. They didn't feel that they were worthy enough, you know, like they're an arts organization. So we're not like at the front line of, you know, people's lives. However, you know, it's an arts organization, you know, like if you don't have ticket sales and people walking into the building, like you're kind of sunk, right? And so, but I think it's the nonprofits that had relationships with their donors and and often donors didn't know how to help. Like, they didn't want to bother the nonprofit, like, oh, you know, like, what do we do? And so there's just this communication void happening. And, but what was needed was help. You know, what was needed was conversations to say, well, this is what I can give. I was going to give you money at the end of the year. How about I give, I give it to you now? 
because I think you need it right now. All right, let's allocate or, some of it here and some of it here. Or I'll help do a you know virtual house party and raise money, help you raise money. Or mm -hmm. what else do you need? I mean, a lot of nonprofits could have benefited from an introduction to a banker uh, in April or May as they were contemplating applying for the PPP loans and other federal loans, right? Because yeah. Well, and you know, now too for this, account, you don't necessarily have a person at the bank that you have a relationship with. And so as a business leader or a person in your community, you might be able to make those kinds of introductions that can be really helpful and meaningful. It costs you nothing, you know, yeah. um, and really not even much time, but it really can make a difference. Yeah, I love I love that idea. I mean, we dealt with PPP loans on this end. We're doing second round with some clients right now. You know, we're looking at it, seeing if it makes sense. You know, there's a lot of options for nonprofits for credits and, you know, just as many as there are for businesses. Um, but a lot of these prob people probably have businesses too, right? Or they have accountants and they could just say, hey, I'm gonna pay for three hours of my accountant's time to help you with this thing, yes. you know, so that we can help you get funded. You know, what needs to happen? We can give you dollars, but we also can give you, you know, what is your pain point? Um, because a lot of us accountants learned how to be bankers. <laughs> In the past year. You know, the other mistake I think um, many donors are making that, um, can be quickly changed is mm -hmm. I think too many, and quite frankly, people, business owners, this happens to all of us is, you know, there's been such constant change at the beginning of this decade. Um, and it feels, has felt like there's just constant crises and the hits keep coming and, and it can feel really hard to plan ahead mm -hmm. when the future is so uncertain. And so I think, and so many of us respond by feeling paralyzed, like how can I possibly create a giving plan, start a foundation, develop my business strategy, whatever, when I don't know what's coming down the pike um, next and the conditions all around me keep changing. And so the problem with that is if you're sitting on the sidelines, you know, you're not engaging in any kind of change. You're not, um, you're not moving forward. You're really falling behind. And um, I think that, again, you have to take a mindset shift to shift from the idea of an unknown future paralyzing you to letting it free you because really the future is no more uncertain today than it was last year or last decade or last century, right? We just all and, feel it more and more yeah. right now. <laughs> right, but you know, disruption and volatility are the status quo. You know, There's always gonna be change. And if you kind of lean into that, if you will, and, and let that free you and, and really create a plan that you can count on that makes sense today, you know, based on the information you currently have, begin using it immediately, implement that plan immediately for as long as it makes sense and then change it rapidly as conditions change yeah. and expect that they will change and really build in time, like literally on your, you know, if you're planning for your strategy for the next year, plan every two months that you're gonna check in with your team or yourself if it's just you and, you know, what's working, what's not working, have conditions changed in the world or within our organization that would warrant us to revisit this? Do we need to add something, get, stop doing something, You know, pivot, tweak, whatever? Mm -hmm. Because then you always have a, a living, breathing, sentient strategy, You know, guiding or plan, guiding you mm -hmm. uh, with the confidence you can change things along the way. And actually, um, I wrote this guide that might be of interest to your listeners. It's called eight things every philanthropist can do to change the world. I love that. Even when the world keeps changing. And it's a free download. You can go to eightthings.org. 
Okay. and download it. And, you know, it's applicable to philanthropists, to nonprofit leaders, really to business leaders, but it's really all about, you know, eight steps to, you know, creating this plan you can count on, even when conditions all around you keep changing, having the confidence to know that you can change it along the way, because, you know, having a, a good, a, a, a good if, even if it's not great, perfect plan allows you to move on something. It allows you to rally your team on something, identify your top priorities, and make sure that your resources are being allocated appropriately. If that's your business strategy or if it's your giving plan, you know, whatever it is, I think it's yeah. really important that we don't feel paralyzed in fear by yeah. not around us. Um, and that creates re resilience, right? If we say we want to get here, but there's a thousand different ways we can get there, or maybe we're going to take an opportunity on the way. Mm -hmm. um, but having those just like I like to call them like yearly goals or, but we do quarterly or monthly or whatever, because then we can just kind of change things as we go and having that resiliency, because really in the end of all of this, the amount of profits that are going to live, the businesses that are going to live, you know, the, the things that are going to continue are the ones where people said, everything's changed for us or things have changed for us. How are we going to solve for this? And then a lot of the time they're better on the back end. Right, because they've they've been resilient, or they've created processes, or they've created a delivery way that they didn't have before, that really does create that resilience in the business and gives them, you know, more flexibility. Um, right. I mean, I think resilience is really not you don't just bounce back from a problem or crisis; you bounce forward. Mm -hmm. And to me, part of that forward momentum is you know having clarity as to where you're headed, mm -hmm. and the confidence. I mean, I was talking to a nonprofit leader. Uh, last month, who's who had just created their strategic plan, like in February, you know, of last of 2020. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the whole thing, everything changed, of course, with COVID, but he said, thank God we had that plan. Because we had two things going for us. We had a plan to, to tweak, right? It wasn't starting from scratch. Like now, what do we do? I was like, okay, we have our strategic plan. Obviously, we can't continue the same way but we're not starting from zero. We can figure out what to adjust and change. And they also had developed kind of a planning mindset. You know, they, their team had come together and thought about what are our priorities and how do we get clarity on what's most important for us to be doing and who's responsible for what. And, you know, they, they had a process in place so they could also activate that process to tweak it, you know, and, you know, continue tweaking it throughout the year. Mm -hmm. That's why I always, people are like, I need a business plan. I'm like, no, you're not. It's just going to sit on a shelf. Like we need a strategic plan, right? Or we need 10-year goals, five-year goals, three-year goals, one-year goals, right? Because that's how we figure out where we're going long-term. A business plan is just a document that doesn't change, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, flexibility is key. Yeah, the flexibility is key because you're right. Things are changing rapidly, even without a pandemic. Things are changing rapidly. I can't tell you how much of my industry was completely frozen by the fact that they couldn't do in-person appointments anymore. Yes. I'm like, y'all, there's this thing called Zoom. <laughs> I'm an early adopter. In the accounting industry, I am an early adopter. But I'm just like, y'all, we have to get on the same page here because people are not, like you're wasting people's time. I started doing Zoom appointments because I was like, I'm not driving 45 minutes downtown to have an hour of coffee and come back. That's a four hour round trip if I get dressed. <laughs> it is. And I'm just like, that's a waste of your time and my time. And you could be working on your business and I could be working on my business. And we can hop in a Zoom call. 
pants optional and we can do 30 minutes, you know, and it's just, it's changed my business and it's changed my driving and it's, you know, like changed so much. I know, but that was because you invested in your own, like building your technological muscles, Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. Um, as did I, I mean, I was using zoom, not as much obviously, but Mm -hmm. so it was not that big of a deal. I knew how to use it. I knew that I could use it. I knew where to go to the, for the zoom tutorials and like learn more and how to use a whiteboard and all that stuff. Right. But it was a fast, you know, it was a fast uptake Mm -hmm. as opposed to starting from scratch. I mean, I know donors, you know, foundations who I think all foundations in the world could be divided into two categories in March of 2020 those that had the ability to make online grant payments electronically and those that couldn't. And there are a lot, a lot of smart, talented, sophisticated foundations, Mm -hmm. private foundations, family foundations, corporate um, community foundations that rely on paper checks that were in an office that had to have multiple signatures of different people. And I talked to nonprofit, excuse me, foundation CEOs who were in a state of panic because they desperately wanted to get money out the door. Like they wanted to, you know, support these nonprofits and physically couldn't because their checks were locked in an office and they had no way, you know, it's, I mean, you, it's a bit of an effort, you know, to take an organization to do that online. Mm -hmm. You know, it isn't like you just call the bank and say, set me up on an online situation. So, you know, they had to, do all these things on the fly, working remotely um, during a crisis. And it took a long time and it, it caused them a lot of unnecessary stress and it caused the nonprofits. They wanted to support a lot of unnecessary stress as well. That's crazy to me. Right. But despite investing a little bit of you know technology and time mm-hmm. uh, to kind of create some online systems to help you, it really makes the difference. And it's that way for everything. It's not just technology, right? Yeah. But just think how much more efficient they are getting the dollars out the door now. Mm-hmm. Right? Like they're not mailing checks. Profit doesn't have to wait for them. They don't have to go to the bank and cash them. Mm-hmm. I stopped taking huge. checks it's three, three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. I have one client that would send me checks. Everything mm-hmm. is on recurring payment. You know how much time that saves me? <laughs> A lot. A, a ton. It's so crazy mm-hmm. how that simple thing can save mm-hmm. you a ton of money mm-hmm. and a ton of time. And people are always like, ah, oh, the credit card fees. And I'm like, you didn't have to go to the bank. Mm-hmm. That's worth the credit card fees. Yes. I give my clients a 10% discount if they pay their whole consulting fee up front in one payment yeah. rather than drag it out over time because then I have control over the money. But also I'm not like billing and worrying about all that stuff on a monthly. I mean, that who wants to do that? Like I have better things to do with my time. It's just not I could necessary. do that or I could call a potential client and say, mm-hmm. hey, like, you know, get more business. It's like all about how you use your time. Again, clarity and what are you trying to accomplish and what's mm-hmm. the best way to do it? And what's the best use of your time mm-hmm. um, as the leader or uh, the entrepreneur or the, the donor? I love that. Um, actually, when we started, Chris, I was like, hmm. This is going to be interesting because we talk about business a lot, but this is all very much stuff we talk about all the time. So I really appreciate your time. Um, okay. So what is the easiest way for people to find you? Yes. Well, a couple things. One is, as I mentioned, if you want to download that free guide, it's eightthings.org. With an eight and or an E-I-G-H-T. Both. 
actually you could use the number eight or the word eight and we'll drop this we always drop everything in the description so um yeah so eightthings.org and that's the free download for the guide eight things every philanthropist can do to change the world even when the world keeps changing that will link to my website um but also the website is putnam-consulting.com and there, you know, you can learn all about the various, you know, strategy, advising, coaching that I do for funders as well as wealth advisors and family offices. Oh and then the book, um, Delusional Altruism, is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And um, if you go to delusionalaltruism.com, there's a all the links that you need right there. All the websites, dang. Um, and you also write for Forbes. I do about philanthropy, I do. Yes, I saw. Um, so I was, I, was re I was reading through some of your links earlier. Um, awesome, okay. Last question. Um, what is the one thing you recommend people do to help their causes today? What would be the one, the one thing to figure out? To help their causes? Yeah, to help whatever cause is important to them. You know, I would, uh, invest in just learning. I really take some time, identify whatever that cause is. Um, you know, mental health, I think is going to be a cause on many of our minds in the next coming uh, few years. Mm -hmm. And really just take some time to learn more about it, identify, you know, organizations to support what are some best practices, what are some, you know, promising interventions, because I think the more informed you are as a donor, the more impact you can have in the kind, you know, what in the ways that you can be supportive to those organizations um, and to the different strategies that are the most promising or, you know, shown by data to be the most effective. I really love that um, understanding what you want and understanding what's important in that realm without, mm -hmm. you know, just blindly giving your dollars to, you know, mm -hmm. whatever sounds the best, but what creates the most impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening or watching. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you prefer to listen. If you learned something and found some useful information to apply to your business today, please consider giving us a thumbs up and a review. Until next week, be abundant.